Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Wednesday, October 20th, and we're talking about WeWork. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis. I'm joined by Fool.com's wicked worldly wizard of wonky writing, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, it's good to be back on a Wednesday show, which means we get a double dose of each other this week, making up for all the missed time in October. That's right. It's a double dose, and, and it's a good wildcard Wednesday because I think this uh, this company we're going to be talking about today, WeWork, it, it needs little introduction. It is one of those companies that has been tough to put into a single category. I think Wildcard Wednesday is the most appropriate day for this uh, episode. Totally. Is this a company that's in the real estate business? Is it a technology company that's focused on real estate? Who knows? Great show for a Wild Hog Wednesday. Yep. And uh, I think this is a business that probably does not need as much background as maybe some of the other companies uh, that we talk about. Uh, it has been in the news in a big way for really like the last four years, but in particular, the last two and a half. Uh, famously tried to come public in 2019. Uh, there were a lot of concerns about the company financials, uh, about the valuation, about the leadership and the corporate governance. Um, those are pretty well documented. And uh, we've done some shows on them in the past. But we are talking about it today because uh, we're, we're able to do this show, actually, Brian, because of news yesterday. Uh, the, the WeWork was going to be coming public via a SPAC, and yesterday we got the news uh, that that was approved uh, by the voters uh, of the company bringing it public. Yeah, so the company tried to go the traditional IPO route two years ago. When that failed, it said, hey, it's 2021. How else can we become public? Ah, a SPAC. So in this case, if you want to become a shareholder of WeWork today, you can buy the SPAC. The ticker symbol is B-O-W-X. And as you just pointed out, the odds of this deal going through are much higher today than they were yesterday. Yeah, and, and if I'm not mistaken... Uh Shares of We are going to begin trading uh, this week uh, on on the exchanges uh, under the ticker We. Uh, until that happens, uh, you can get access via BOWX, the BOX Acquisition Corp. Um, now, Brian, Brian, I think we're going to try to resist the temptation as much as possible to revisit all of the drama of the 2019 IPO process and and a lot of the dirty laundry that came out with that with the company during the press cycle. Um, but but I do want to kind of approach this in the way that we would uh, a history lesson, but also uh, a new IPO show or or a new you know um, kind of framework show that we would traditionally for prospectuses. And so I think we'll try to compare where the company was when it first came uh, or almost came to the public markets and where it is now as we discuss this business. Uh, I think maybe one of the first places to start is just the the leaders of the SPAC and also kind of the backstory on why and how this company is coming public now. Sure. That's one thing that did jump out to me. Uh, I, I This company was not on my radar at all until you pointed it out to me. I mean, I just wrote this off as essentially the next Theranos, a company that tried to come public, and okay, that business clearly didn't work. So I was surprised to see it uh, back. Uh, it was equally surprising to see when you look at the uh, CEO uh, of the SPAC that's taken this company public. Uh, this is uh, Vivek Ranadive, and that is a name that I have known and appreciated for many years. If that name sounds 
sounds familiar, uh, he was the founder and CEO of a software company that was focused on middleware called Tibco. The reason that name might be even more familiar is he was featured in Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book, David and Goliath, because of the success that his daughter's basketball team had, and it was largely due to the principles that Vivek put into place. So he is an outside-of-the-box thinker, and he's also an owner of the Sacramento Kings. So to me, having his name associated with this deal boosts its credibility. It does. And, and I think what the general theme we're going to be seeing as we work through this and compare and contrast where the company was in 2019 and 2021 now is this is uh, a, a more buttoned up operation. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the adults are in the room, so to speak, uh, with this business. And you're going to see it both in the folks on the side of the SPAC and also the, the leadership team that's that's uh, currently in place at WeWork. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but I think, Brian, um, Materially, this is a very similar business to what was trying to become public in 2019. Um, you know, we we had a couple different segments with that business in 2019 um, that are not currently there. Uh, they had, you know, we work their core co-working business, we live, which is a co-living space, uh, and we grow, which is a, a small-scale education uh, initiative that they had. Uh, all of the money was really coming from the co-working, and and the business model there, Brian, is. We have these long-term leases. We're going to cut them up and find uh, smaller tenants, be able to enjoy some premium on that, and then basically have short-term leases with them. Um, That's how they made most of their money back in 2019. That's really how they're making most of their money now. Yeah, and what's interesting about the new WeWork, as as we're going to call it, is that the company did say, it went out of its way to said, we have divested those former uh, businesses, so they're no longer uh, a focus of the company at all. WeWork is the dominant focus of the company, and that makes sense. And if you just back up and just think about the long-term uh, potential for, for what the company is doing... There's still a lot of potential there. I mean, it fits very well with where the world was in 2019, and I think even more so today with where we are in a post-COVID world. The idea is to offer anyone that wants flexible office space the ability to lease out on short-term or long-term arrangements. There's a lot of benefits to doing so. Especially if you're a small mom and pop shop, you can use offices on a temporary basis, or even if you're a big employer, the ability to have flexible workspace is really attractive, especially if you have one-off business meetings and you want to present a, a, a professional look, or if you have an event coming up and need a bigger space. That is the That was the long-term bull case for WeWork, and it's very much still there. Yeah, the stereotype is that the WeWork occupant is a freelancer or, you know, it's a startup with four employees and it wouldn't make sense for them to have a traditional office, but in the co-working space, it makes so much more sense. I, I think that's true to some extent, but we are seeing increasingly that the names on their customer list are some pretty big companies. Absolutely. They are Microsoft, Samsung, Sprint, Square, IBM, big companies have taken notice of this and they have really warmed up to the idea of flexible space. And keep in mind, that was also in place two years ago. Given where we are in the world now with people returning back to work and employers are really struggling to figure out how much office space do we do we actually need to provide our employees with, this model makes even more sense today. I think that's right. And, and it might be kind of an underappreciated piece of the narrative. We'll, we'll go through the financials and the valuation and, and talk a little bit about how we put a bow on it. But one thing I am struck by is uh, the fact that this company was able to navigate the last two years and is now possibly in an even more advantageous position than they were when they were trying to come public uh, in terms of just the, the real estate environment, um, where people are with commercial leasing. 
there is a lot of interesting stuff here. I don't know if it's necessarily an investable idea, but I think it's an idea worth paying attention to and following. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there. And one thing that's worth pointing out is while they did abandon their previous attempts at We Live and We Grow, the business model still has some innovation uh, to it. One thing that WeWork is starting to do is to partner with property owners or businesses that have extra space that they're not fully utilizing and to basically have WeWork handle out the, the, the leasing and to, and to get it on WeWork's network so that it can actually monetize that space. That's an interesting innovation that I think could have long-term uh, legs. Another thing that this company is, is said that it's investing in is a SaaS product. And an initiative that they have in place is to give these big employers the ability to not only manage their properties, all of their, their WeWork properties, but all of their non-WeWork properties too. And they can handle things like uh, booking, uh, access management, visitor management, flexible space, analytics. Those two things I just mentioned are tiny or non-existent parts of the business today, but the company does still have some embedded optionality in it. Brian, I want to talk a little bit about management and culture early on in this episode, because uh, such a large part of the, the WeWork story when it was first trying to come public was Adam Newman, right? This is the, the visionary founder and leader of the company, eccentric, checks a lot of the boxes for a classic Silicon Valley leader, um, big, ambitious ideas, big, ambitious goals. Um, and when they were trying to shop the company to public investors in 2019, uh, it was a pretty classic founder situation. We had a founder and the, and the co-founder, Miguel McKelvey, uh, was with the company as well. Um, so you had two co-founders. Uh, and, and really, the power sat with the co-founder, specifically Adam Newman, in this situation. And the bet on we was a bet on him. Um, and he was the one steering the ship, uh, for better or worse. Uh, as the dirty laundry started getting aired, he quickly became uh, a little bit of a sideshow and and wound up being, you know, more of a distraction for the company. So we saw them, you know, kind of move on and, and bring in some more established leadership. That's what we see here with the current leadership team. It's it's a little bit more of the standard operators and people that have uh, the 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 resume of running big operations, specifically in the real estate space. I think the company's board of directors recognized that they weren't going to go anywhere with Newman. So he was shown the door and a new CEO was brought in. The current CEO is Sandeep Mithrani. Uh, he has only been at the company uh, for two years, but he is an accomplished uh, executive. The company also, the company's CFO is Ben Durham. He's been at the company for, uh, for, for four years. So I think the management change up was needed and it does give this company some credibility now. Yeah, and, and Marcelo Clare, um, the CEO of Sprint, and he's a SoftBank executive. He he remains the company's executive chairman, um, and and was kind of the crisis manager early on in 2019 when when they were trying to navigate the the failed IPO attempt and really kind of get the business back on track. So I think he's been heavily involved in building this leadership team, um, and and really you know trying to get things back on the rails. One of the things that really stuck out to me, and, and this was something that was memed like crazy when the company was coming public in 2019, was the company's ambition statement. And at the time, it was elevate the world's consciousness, which I you know I think got some eye rolls um, from, from Wall Street. Uh, and they, they have since changed that. And their mission statement now is empowering tomorrow's world at work. And Brian, I know you are someone who spends a lot of time looking at mission statements, and, and perhaps more than, than a lot of other investors. What do you make of something like that? I think it was a change for the better. I mean, to elevate the world's consciousness, what does that even mean? 
Like, what does that mean? At its core, a mission statement, a good mission statement is a North Star for the company that it's aiming at and it uses to make decisions. Um, elevate the world's consciousness. What, what, what kind of decision could you make if you were a frontline worker? I, I'm going to make this decision to elevate the world's consciousness. It's, it's meaningless. The new one, to empower tomorrow's world at work, that's better. It's definitely a step in, in, in the right direction. I think it could be a I think there's work to be done on it, but it's it's definitely a much better mission statement today than it was two years ago. Yeah, I think good mission statements put people in a position where strategically they know the work that they do and how it ties into that mission. You know, there there are clear lines for people, and they can find that alignment. Uh, whether they're you know at the C-suite for a company or they're a new hire and it's like you know day five, they can kind of piece that together. And this is a little bit more literal. I think it's helpful for people uh, to have it be a little bit more tangible. Um, we, we have to talk financials and, and a huge part of the story, Brian, when, when this company was coming public was humongous revenue growth. We had year over year, double in revenue, um, and massive losses, absolutely massive losses. Um, recently we have seen this business slash costs. We look at them kind of cutting back They They had to let go of a lot of the, the employees, uh, around the, the IPO, the failed IPO, um, I'm I'm a little surprised looking at the subsequent years that have followed and what this company is projecting uh, in terms of revenue. Yeah, I was like you. I was pleasantly surprised with how this company's top line actually held up throughout the COVID pandemic. Uh, we, we've seen so many travel companies, real estate companies report massive year-over-year declines in revenue. So WeWork reported in 2019 $3.2 billion in revenue. In 2020, the pandemic year, it reported... $3.2 billion in revenue. So that held up remarkably well. Uh, if you dial in on that more, there was a decline year over year, but it held up uh, pretty well. Now for 2021, the company is estimating that it's going to see the effects of the, the pandemic start to hit it. So for the full year, it's only estimating that it's going to do about $2.7 billion in revenue and occupancy is down. Um, so everything is heading in the wrong direction now. Moving forward, the company is going out there and saying that it believes that revenue is going to substantially increase from here as those COVID uh, headwinds turn into COVID tailwinds. Yeah, and and this is where uh, being a SPAC probably helps them out a little bit because they can take that multi-year look and be a little bit more optimistic in uh, some of those future year projections. You know, being able to say, hey, you know, we had we had. 2.7 2.7 billion in 2021, uh, or you know, that's that's about where we see ourselves sitting. Uh, and in 2024, we're coming in at just shy of 7 billion. Um, it's it's a compelling story to tell people. I think Brian, there's there's a lot of work to be done to make that happen. And I don't know that uh, I don't know that the core concern around this company losing a lot of money has necessarily gone away based on what we're seeing in the financials. No, no, it hasn't. And the company, the "Quote unquote profitability metric that we the company is touting is adjusted EBITDA, which is a metric that I do not like at all, but it is something worth worth looking at. So the company did say that in 2019, its adjusted EBITDA was negative 1.9 billion, so the losses were huge in 2019. In 2020, that actually improved slightly to 1.8 billion. A lot of that was because of that cost cutting. And for 2021, the estimate is for the full year, the company is going to lose 1.5 billion in adjusted EBITDA. Where the story gets interesting is the company actually believes that next year, 2022, 
with that estimated strong uh, rebound that on an adjusted EBITDA basis, it's going to be a positive number. And that number is going to jump to all the way to $2 billion by 2024. So the company is believes that all of its cost-cutting measures that it has done will result in profitability, in air quotes, within the very short term. And I think that's going to be a major test for this management team, Brian, because one of the things that um, kind of dogged WeWork for, for a while uh, when when all of these things started coming out as after the failed IPO was these discussions and these interviews that Adam Newman and, and and folks had where they were saying you know we have the ability to be profitable when we want to we're choosing not to be profitable and what a lot of people ultimately cited was a community based EBITDA number that was I mean let's be honest it was it was fun with numbers you know and and we know that those non gap numbers can be really useful sometimes but sometimes they can be used to paint a picture um, that they want to be able to sell to investors. And so, you know, I, I think knowing that that is the history where this company is coming from, I would look for this management team to paint a realistic picture of when profitability will happen. And and I think honestly, like that is one of the key things to be scoring them against because it has been so growth at all costs oriented, um, you know, up until the failed IPO. I think that's something that they need to do to establish trust uh, with investors. I, I think that's exactly right. And We've looked at a few SPAC projections now, and I will say that these are probably, at least on the revenue perspective, more on the realistic side than a lot of other ones that we've seen. I mean, the company isn't out there saying we're going to grow 70% compound annual growth rate over the next five years. They're essentially saying we expect a strong rebound in 2022. I don't think that's a crazy uh, projection. And then from there on out, they're estimating roughly 20% top line growth. So that is not a growth at any cost and any, a number that seems impossible to hit. It's rosy, but it's not impossible. Yeah, I, I agree. I felt like there was like a healthy dose of reality in the numbers that we were seeing because, yes, the SPAC land can get uh, pretty wild pretty fast. Um, but but I think people need to keep in mind that there is a large hurdle here with with profitability with this business. They, I think, have yet to prove that they you know deserve the trust there. Um that is going to be one of the major ways, I think, that the public markets score this company and this management team. For sure. Now, actually funding the losses that are projected for the rest of the year, uh, that, that is where the SPAC is really going to help. So we do have somewhat of a look at what their pre and post IPO about uh, the, the SPAC balance sheet is going to uh, to look like. So earlier in the year, the company had about uh, $650 million in cash and $3.5 billion in a net debt position. As a result of the SPAC, the company believes that its cash and funding commitments that it's have, so not pure cash, but access to liquidity, will be about $2.2 billion. Uh, if those adjusted EBITDA metrics are anywhere close to, to reality, that should be enough to see this company to quote-unquote profit profitability. So financially, the company is in a completely different space today than it was two years ago. Yeah, there were stories of you know them having a couple months worth of funding at at various points, and so you know to to be in a spot where they've got a year locked in, uh, and they're they're posting to okay, we we think that the numbers are going to start changing pretty dramatically at this point. Um, that that inspires some confidence. Um, I I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, when when we look at these these numbers and and these decks on this backside is, uh, people can get pretty aggressive in what the future business looks like, Brian. And one other space where I think I was pleasantly surprised by the realism of, of what this management team was, was throwing out there was 
what we are seeing in terms of uh, the financial projections, they're all rooted in the core business being the driver of, of this company. There are some things I think to be excited about that they want to tout, some new initiatives that they're um, looking that I think will explore some optionality in their space. But at core, those numbers are going to be driven by their core leasing business. Which is a comp- which is something they've been doing now for more than ten years. So yeah, I I, I do like that that they're saying the core WeWork business, the thing that we are we're known for, is going to be the revenue driver moving forward. Yeah, and and I think four things to be excited about. Um, they I think are going to move a little bit from the small and medium sized business and increasingly go after some some enterprise members uh, and and kind of establish relationships with some of those bigger companies. I, we were talking about it before. I, I think the timing could actually be really excellent for something like that. Um, I think a lot of businesses are trying to reevaluate their physical footprint, especially in a lot of high-cost cities where there are a lot of WeWorks. Um, it means that WeWork is going to have to assume a little bit of risk uh, in order to execute on that. But there is, I think, something pretty interesting there for them, Brian. And they already have a history of successfully landing those enterprise customers. So it's not crazy for them to say that they want to keep doing what they're doing. Again, they've landed Microsoft, Samsung, uh, Slack, and companies at that size already. So they, they're already doing that. And, and I think another thing to kind of keep in mind and, and just kind of watch out for as it develops over the next couple of years, um, they are increasingly interested in a platform approach. We heard a little bit about like a WeOS type thing uh, when they were originally trying to come public. Um, but this this platform approach, basically flexible space management platform uh, that connects enterprises and landlords, uh, provides design, build, lease, operating, management, and community services. And Brian, if I have that right, it sounds like it's kind of a marketplace and landlord portal for commercial real estate. That's my interpretation too. And again, it's it's anyone's guess whether or not that business line is going to be successful or not. But a big thing that I look for in potential investments is optionality and it, more importantly, realistic optionality, not some pie in the sky business that they're not related to the core business at all. I do think there are signs of that, that, that happening here. And I like the company is making those investments. But even within the core business, the opportunity is still very large. Yeah. And I see that that extension and that optionality is something that's related to their core competence. It's, it's what they're good at, right? They're, they are excellent at creating spaces that people want to be in. Um, that, that has never been the issue. Uh, you know, the design is basically category defining, you know, for what people expect when it comes to uh, the tech startup world. Um, it's, it's just a matter of finding the right way for the unit economics to come together for them, for it to turn into a viable business. Yeah, there's a reason the company has been successful. I mean, you don't generate billions of dollars in revenue in less than 10 years unless you're doing uh, something, right? So now that they're fixing kind of the management structure and the capital structure, the company does have a chance at long-term success. So we, we buried, I think, maybe one of the most interesting details here, Brian, for the end, uh, looking at valuation. So uh, back in 2019, this was a business that was shooting for uh, a valuation somewhere in the high $40 billion range. That was that was roughly where the planned IPO uh, was was going to sit. Um, we are now looking at a business that will come to the public markets at roughly a nine billion dollar valuation, and and I think that's a, a pretty incredible haircut for a variety of reasons. That is a much more palatable uh, for number for investors to swallow. And if you've been an employee this this whole time, it's no fun to see your stock options essentially go down in value by 80%. Uh, but I do think a $9 billion valuation, given the numbers that we're seeing, is, is much more palatable for investors. 
I think so too. And and I think that the employee detail there, Brian, is interesting because my understanding with WeWork is is options were generally how they were creating uh, stakeholder alignment with their employees and, and kind of you know using equity as a retention tool. Um, it, it's a different animal if they're options than if they're just straight up equity grants. And uh, this this business um, is basically flat from the haircut that we anticipated when it was going to come public. There were rumors that it was worth somewhere between five to nine billion uh, in 2019 in, in the aftermath of the not IPO. But even if you go back to 2016, the company was worth 16 billion in private valuation rounds. So there are the folks that are still there and had very large uh, equity grants or, or options grants. Um, it it's a little dicey in terms of how valuable that is as a retention tool. Yeah, I really wonder how what it's been like to work at this company for the last couple of years. I mean, all that they've gone through and then you have your options going to be essentially bust uh, on top of that. I'm sure the turnover at the headquarters has been uh, very, very high. So now that the company has a management team in place, it's going to be really important for them to double down on the values of the company and really focus on employee retention. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, the the employee side, it, it's easy when you see these big collapses, I think, to to lean into the drama and, you know, you know, focus on the salacious details. I think the employees are the people I really feel for in this situation, because for the most part, those are, those are folks that expect something in their compensation with, with some pretty decent upside. Um, and, you know, for the most part, they had the rug totally pulled out from underneath them. Yeah, that, that, that's right. So this is a chance for the company to m- make it right on, on that front. Uh, so Brian, to, to put a bow on all of this, um, we work 2.0. Uh, is is this something you're at all interested in? I'm going to say no. I mean, f- flat out, I wasn't really interested in WeWork 1.0. While WeWork 2.0 is definitely a, a much better uh, company, I still think there's a tremendous amount of risk and hair uh, uh, on this investment. And it's not that I think the company is going to fail, uh, especially at this valuation. There could be good returns for investors. But when it comes to managing my own capital, I'm always thinking, what is the best opportunity and the best companies out there? And while this could be a good opportunity, I don't think it's the best. How about you? Yeah, I, I think they're staring at something kind of hard, um, just just in terms of the challenges in front of the business. And so for that reason, I think it's it's a little tough to be super excited. I do think there are probably more tailwinds here than people would give them credit for. The The key is going to be, can they overcome some of the brand damage that that happened to the company name? Uh, both for investors, but also for consumers. You know, is is it that um, in the rebrand and also in the aftermath of, of everything that happened post twenty nineteen, um, did that at all hurt people's expectations for this this company? And so, you know, I, I think that's something to keep an eye on. But it's a fascinating story, and you know, I think we like to see redemption stories. Uh, they're they're fun to root for, uh, and so you know, I, I think it's one that I'll be paying attention to, watching, uh, and hoping you know that they they write the ship and that there's something good here. There's a lot of business lessons to learn from watching companies like this. And while we always are, fo- you know, we're investors, so we're always focused on what the story is on on Wall Street and amongst investors. It's really hard for us to suss out what's the story for the actual customers. Did they care that the company's IPO failed? Uh, prob- probably not. What they care about is is the price I'm paying worth the value that I'm, that I'm getting. So uh, if the brand name hasn't been damaged on the consumer side, uh, that that might be something for investors to be excited about. Yeah. And for that, I'll say, listeners, if you are a WeWork user or if you're in the co-working space, we always like getting reports from folks who use products. Industryfocus.fo.com or at MF Industry Focus on Twitter. You can hit us up there. You can also hit up Brian Feroldi on Twitter. He is super active there and worth a follow. Brian, thanks for joining me on today's show. 
Thank you, Dylan. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. If you are looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, fool on. Thank you.